0: professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us this week is Brian Hogan. Brian is a software architect, Microsoft MVP, site author, podcaster, and blogger. He has 20 years of experience focusing on development of web applications, microservices, and desktop applications. Welcome, Brian.
1: Thank you very much, gentlemen. Very nice to be with
2: you. Yeah, so uh, before we sort of jump into the meat of things, Uh, Would you give our listeners maybe a little uh, introduction to yourself, you know, perhaps uh, how you got started in the industry?
1: In the industry, I have to wind the clock back. Um, If you want to go all the way back, my dad came home, came home one evening with a computer an Amstrad CPC 464, 64 kilobytes. I think it was 1984. Uh, That's where I started tapes, um, audio cassette tapes to load and save programs Went to university, did computers there, um, lived in Hungary, Bud- Budapest, working professionally for the first time, and then bounced over to the Boston area. And I've been here since 2008. And then I, somewhere along the line, I ended up in C-sharp and .NET, and I stuck with it.
2: <laughs> Very cool. Uh, you you had mentioned uh, that uh, sort of along the way you you you've started a podcast and you've you've now uh have up over 150 episodes of that but you you want to talk why don't you talk a little bit more about what that's been like and especially here recently what that's been for you
1: uh it's great it's nerve-wracking at first you know the first few episodes (laughs) i've listened back to parts of them and it's stressful you're doing something you've never done before with guests that have reputations and you have to you know convince them to come on And then after maybe about 10, 12 episodes, you begin to relax into it and you start enjoying it. And then after about 50 episodes, you realize, oh, now I'm good at it. (laughs) I wasn't good at it at 10 or 15 or 20 or 25. Uh, I I started doing it, I think it was in 2014. The original idea was I was suggesting that my wife should do one. She was in the uh, web analytics world at the time and she knew all the kind of the main people. And I was saying, you know, you could get them on a podcast. They would talk to you. They know you. And she didn't want to. And I said, well, okay, fine, I'll do it. And then I (laughs) started with some people I knew. And then I asked them to introduce me to people they knew and progressed from there. And 154 episodes later, I'm still at it. And I still love making the podcasts, editing and uh, getting them out on the web. A little less so, but I love making them.
2: Do you, do you do your own editing? Then I guess. Yeah,
1: yeah. All it's all hundred percent. The 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 recording, the editing, adding music at the end, the voiceover occasionally, uh, the blog post that goes with it, maintaining the site. You know, it, it's all my work. Each episode, people have asked me, it's about five to six hours of work for every episode
2: after the recording, right? Including or, the recording, including oh, the including prep the as well, recording. including
1: the back and forths, the emails um, agenda setting research for the topic and so on.
0: Yeah. I'm amazed that people are so generous with their time to come on the podcast. I mean, we, we just crossed the the 200 episode line nice. there. So, uh, you know, and, and we're still getting people that are willing to come on. So <laughs> we, we must be doing something right. Um, but I find it's, it's really useful to, Discover things from others in the industry, uh, whether that's technologies or just bits of information, bits of advice here and there. We use it a lot for this particular technology came up in conversation. Let's discover a little bit more about it. And that's why we re- reached out to you to talk a little bit more about Poly and what that is and we'll get into that in a minute. But wanted to, to know if there were any uh, specific topics that that really come to mind for your podcast of the episodes that stand out to you
1: yeah and they're not the tech ones the the favorite ones i've made have been probably the ones on repetitive strain injury with a uh, a therapist named suparna damani she wrote a book on repetitive strain injury on primarily on the hand but also other parts of the body and having her on felt to me like this is something that will actually affect the person's life and improve their life, remove pain. Maybe they won't have to wear a, a hand splint as I was wearing, you know, after I, I was having a little bit of a repetitive strain injury, I got her book. I got another book within about two weeks. It was resolved now. So it wasn't bad for me, but I went from having one of those metal things that keep your hands straight to not needing it ever again and having her on Sharing that information with other people, And I had her on again this year, I think in February, giving advice on lockdown and COVID and getting exercise and how to how to maintain physical health. Those are my kind of favorite ones. I also had one on mental health with a um, a psychiatrist again giving advice. The tech stuff I I thoroughly enjoy, but the stuff that affects your life, I I kind of I, I aim a little more for sometimes.
2: Yeah, that's pretty cool.
0: We've had some uh, as well that are uh, mental health. We've had some on personal finances that, that seem to, to go over pretty well with our audience as well. But with that, I wanted to see if, if maybe we could dive into Polly and figure out what it is we're talking about, what your experience with Polly has been and, and why it might be useful.
1: Sure. So Polly for me, it was something a, a buddy of mine mentioned to me one day and I went on the web, had a look and thought, that's cool going to be very useful in the scenario I've got where we're making these requests and we're getting intermittent failures. So we started to use it and and from there I started learning a little bit more about it. I got in touch with the creator of it, Dylan Reisenberger. He ended up on my podcast. I got more interested in it. And then I thought, Oh, I'll do a Pluralsight course on it. But for people that haven't heard of it, Poly is a resilience framework. It will allow you to write applications in a manner that is more robust. They can avoid errors potentially or in the event of errors recover from from them in some graceful way.
2: It sounds like there's a a lot of opportunity there, but uh what are the sort of prime ways that that you can use poly uh, and where sort of what what are the kind of um, are, is there limitations to the the platforms that that it can be used on.
1: In the .NET world, there's no limitation to the platform, but to give you a kind of a quick example of maybe best bang for your buck, Poly has what's called a retry policy. You make a request. If you get a failure, it will perform a retry without you intervening. And that retry could be, you know, a 400 or in the event of uh, a 500, it will potentially retry with some context awareness If you have an unauthorized, it won't blindly retry. You can set it up to perform some form of reauthorization step before retrying. So I think the majority of people retry is the thing they're going to use the most. And in some cases, it's as far as they have to go. And then retry isn't as simple as retry, bang, 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 bang. It can also be retry with a delay, which is called wait and retry. So you can... Introduce a pause between the retries because if you're hitting a remote system that's unresponsive, hitting it over and over and over often isn't the answer. So sometimes you'll want to step back for a few seconds, and a few seconds, and a
0: few more seconds.
2: If there's a contention issue, it's whoever can get there inf- as many requests in, and the first ones in. I thought that that was the way it worked.
0: Yeah, that's that's when the uh, distributed denial of service attacks start. That-
1: <laughs> you, you can make you know Polly can make things worse. If the system is struggling because mm-hmm. you'll have all of the requests being thri- tried three or four times instead of once. But that's, you know, that's, that's relatively easy to avoid when wait and retry. And wait and retry can be introduced as a, a, a single value or as a lambda, which you say after the first retry, it's two seconds then four, then eight and so on.
0: Just playing devil's advocate here, I, I've seen a number of different applications that have their own hand-rolled retry logic in. You know, catch an exception and do maybe a, a task.delay or something and, and you know, wait a few seconds and then retry the failed HTTP request. Is that something, do you see that a lot? Is there more to resiliency than just, as you say, kind of blindly retrying, uh, whether it's on a on a delay of sorts?
1: Well, I think there might be kind of, two ways of answering this. The first one, you know, about doing it yourself home rolled. I've had this discussion with a person at a conference. He came up to me afterwards and said, look, I can do this with a for loop. And I was going, yeah, you absolutely can. You could have a for loop with a try with an if statement and it will work. But, you know, it's not configurable. You can't deploy that to multiple locations within your code. You can't change it easily. You can't introduce nuance to it. You'd be copy pasting it all over the place. On the second point, so the, the thing again with with the kind of the awareness Polly can have of the error, it does allow you to potentially not retry if it's a failure that you know it will not recover from or if it's an error that you know you need to take some alternate action. Like again, the simple example would be you're not authorized. Well, there's no point in trying the exact same thing. Let me go get a new token and now I will retry. There are other, uh, you can pretty much introduce any. Delegates between retries as you see fit. So it's kind of your imagination and your situation. The poly doesn't stop you from doing simple and hammer it, and it doesn't stop you from being nuanced and careful and slow. And that's just retry. Poly has a lot more than retry, but again as I say, I think a large majority of people probably stop at retry. I was at a, I was giving a talk at NDC once and in uh, the audience, I asked, you know, how many people have heard of Polly? I think 80%. How many people have used it with retries? Probably about the same percentage. And then as I went through each of the resilience um, policies or strategies that Polly has, fewer and fewer hands until I got to the last ones. And it was like no one has used them at all. And again, it's understandable. You get an enormous amount of benefit from retry.
2: What are some of those uh other resiliency policies that 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 uh, poly has to offer
1: one of i suppose the next most common one would potentially be what's called the fallback so if you've retried three times or four times or whatever number and you're still getting a failure you may want to perform some other action like i don't know let the user know page an admin scale a system something like that and it will be, it'll be the last thing. So Polly has this concept of wrapping. A policy can be wrapped by a policy, can be wrapped by a policy. So at the very center, you could say your request is it's wrapped by the retry. And outside that will be the fallback. The retries fail, the fallback will step in and do something. And again, it's up to you to do something meaningful.
2: Aha! Uh-huh. It's a big ask. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, it's
1: very context. It's very much the context, you know. If you if you determine that the system is responding, you know, it's timing out, okay, the fallback may well be to scale the system. And that's not trivial. That might it might be easier to page someone to say, scale that system for you. Another another fairly popular one would be called a circuit breaker. So if you've decided that the remote system is down, there's no point in continuing to hit it. You cut the circuit. So then any future requests that are going to that circuit, they don't get sent and you get an error immediately. And the benefit of getting that error immediately is you're not waiting for the error. You're not holding on to any threads or memory or sockets failing fast.
2: Gotcha. How does that recover from like a circuit breaker situation?
1: There are two kinds. There's a simple and the other one's called advanced. Simple is if you get a consecutive number of failures, the circuit will break for a for a period. So three consecutive failures, it'll break for 10 seconds. After 10 seconds, the first request that comes true will be kind of a test request. If you get a good response or a, you know, a successful response, the circuit goes back to its normal closed state and the request will flow as normal. If you get a failure at that point, it'll then break again for another 10 seconds. So that one's pretty crude, you know. two two, two consecutive failures, 10 consecutive failures, whatever it is, the more nuanced one is called the advanced circuit breaker. And that takes a sort of a a window into account. So you have to have, uh, let's say 50 requests in a 10 second window with a failure rate of 10%. It then averages that out over that sliding window of time. And in the event of you hitting that bound, that, that let's say that threshold, it'll cut the circuit. It'll then break for a period of time and then it'll close it back up. And again, the idea here is that you'll take pressure off the remote system that's struggling. The benefit to them is you're not hammering them. They might have time to recover. The benefit to you is you're not wasting resources. And for someone calling you, you're responding to them very quickly with, I can't reach that. You know, stop. I can't reach that. And they're not holding on to resources either. So there's there's kind of like a healing, if you want to use that term, benefit benefit upstream and downstream.
2: Okay. And, I, and this is kind of going a little bit back to retry because I want to sort of move this forward but um, retry my, it is my understanding the retry also has some different ways where you can wait and retry or ex- exponentially back off like mm-hmm. so, so what can you kind of go through some of your options uh, and why what you might why, what you might be thinking about when you're choosing one versus the other
1: well you can program it to back off at any rate you want so you can hard code it in as a one second between them or you can do something that maybe Adjusts it based on a number of retries. So the first retry occurs relatively quickly. The second retry is a little bit longer. The third one is even longer out. That's entirely under your control with a, a relatively straightforward Lambda. The scenarios would be, you know, I think it would be very case dependent. You know, if you're sending requests to Kinesis or something like that, how long? If if it's not responding it's probably reasonable to assume it'll be back very, very soon. So you would probably have a relatively short retry. If you know you've got a system that's that goes down from time to time or maybe throws 500s every every hour for a minute or something, well, then maybe your back off is longer. It, 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 but it's the flexibility is it's entirely up to you.
2: Okay. And then so talk, talking about like how it wraps, that it seems to me like that circuit breaker... Would be one of the things that you would want to use in construction with, like a retry, mm-hmm. so that that retry is happening and an individual request is going on. But then you have you want to use that circuit breaker to like circumvent all of the other incoming requests that you have once you realize, hey, there's an issue issue
1: here. Yeah. So you could let let's say take a scenario that uh, you've got a remote system that's got multiple endpoints, and you can put you can put poly on all of the points of your code that call those remote endpoints. So you might have 10 separate retries, uh, let's say instances of a retry policy. The terminology is a little bit mixed, but it's it's good enough for this. You could then also have one instance of a circuit breaker policy that wraps all 10 of those. So it's monitoring all 10. So let's say uh, remote system endpoint A, B, C, and D, and so on. If A shows that the system is down, timing out, unresponsive, you might decide that the circuit breaker should cut requests of A, B, C, D, the whole lot of them. So circuit breaker can be very useful in a scenario like that, that it doesn't matter what endpoints are struggling on the remote system. You want to stop communicating with that remote system. And then you may have a fallback wrapped around the circuit breaker (coughs) to get in touch with an admin or something.
0: And that said, I mean, poly isn't just for HTTP requests either, right? There, There's more functionality or more ways to utilize the resiliency that poly gives you, right? Yes.
1: This is something that I, I, I didn't highlight enough in presentations I've given. Poly, a poly policy can be used with any any method that you can call, whether or not it takes parameters or returns anything. So I've written some blog posts and I've included it in the slides You can do it with simple mathematical functions, a method that takes two numbers and returns a number. You know, it doesn't make sense that it's going to fail, but you can wrap that in a poly retry if you want. It works with any, effectively any method you can call can be protected. I have tended to focus on the HTTP, but you could do it with a database request. So Entity Framework, I don't know whether it still does, but it certainly used to have a retry system built in. I didn't use it. I use poly because it was something I was familiar with.
2: It seems like maybe in those other situations, maybe something like a, like other things like fallback, especially fallback, might be like a pretty good, uh, useful tool there.
1: No, it certainly would. Uh, I think a lot of people are using it in mobile apps as well. Again, this is more, again, HTTP related, but connectivity that goes, not reliable. Um, There is a large and popular chat application. I won't say which one making extensive use of poly because it doesn't have great connectivity to its uh, service, its backend services. It's one of the ones that feels kind of slow and sluggish when you use it. That's using (laughs) poly pretty extensively for retries. But embedded systems, too. Think of IoT devices, limited connectivity, um, failures in telecommunication, underlying telecommunication uh, layer. Polly can handle that for you, whether it's a HTTP request or a database request or anything.
0: And it seems like the the more that our applications become distributed, whether that's uh, microservices, whether that's just distributed monoliths. There's a lot of functionality that isn't necessarily within the same application architecture, that, that they must rely on something external to them. So we've got to figure out how our applications become and stay resilient. No, this Is this true.
2: Are, are there proactive strategies that you know kind of can be used to uh, kind of help us monitor our application health?
1: Yeah. So the ones that we were talking about, the retries, the fallbacks and the circuit breaker are reactive. A problem has occurred. I know what it is. I can do something about it or I can't, but it has happened. And there's you can't, you know, you can't unwind that. It's its definitely happened. There are the proactive ones as well, which allow you to, I suppose, try to stabilize a system. Uh not use up too many resources, or maybe let it fail more gracefully. And that's, you know, that's a, a nice benefit. Not having something that necessarily crashes, but gradually degrades over time.
2: What, what are some of those strategies?
1: Sure. One of the more common ones is probably the timeout. Uh, I'll, I'll stick with HTTP examples simply because I've done a lot of that. With a HTTP request, it used to be 100 seconds was the default timeout. I'll make a request. I'll wait 100 seconds. I hope I get something. I haven't gotten it. I'll keep waiting. Polly would let you wrap a policy around that to say fail after two seconds or one second or five seconds. Uh, again, databases, um, requests to systems that would have, you know, and A reasonable period of time in which you would expect a response, but the default might be very, very long and it mightn't be trivial to set that default yourself. So timeout is handy in those scenarios. And, you know, again, it's not only that you are failing quickly. You're not holding on to a socket. You're not holding on to memory. You're not holding on to other things. And also whatever is calling you isn't waiting as well. You you tell it, I failed. Go do something else.
2: Hopefully they're using poly as well.
1: It, yeah, and that's that's <laughs> it, there. There can be kind of layers of it too. Yeah, that the best benefit will be if a lot of systems are using it. And then another, I suppose, another popular one would be caching. I don't know if a lot of, I don't know, I've used it a lot. I don't know how many other people use it because it is one of the more tricky ones to use. It allows you to cache a response, whether it's HTTP or otherwise. There isn't a massive benefit in caching caching the HTTP response, but you can cache the value inside. And then Poly will intercept the request to that remote system or that method that you're calling and return a response from the cache instead. And you can set timeouts. It's all based on Microsoft's internal memory cache. I, I can't remember exactly the correct name, but the, the standard one you get out of the box with that.
2: Nat. Yeah, I was sort of wondering, like, would that be in place of i guess i guess you're doing it on the request side not on the um, serving serving side
1: yeah so you you the caller are choosing to cache the response that you get for a period of time it is i've written quite a few blog posts on it because it is one of the ones that it's one of the ones that's harder to use in a simple way the code behind the code you have to use is more complicated the concepts are a little more complicated
2: I think that makes that makes a ton of sense. Uh, wh- one of the situations I was actually in here just recently, and we were we were trying to we were having a little internal debate uh, on sort of where and how we use this. But uh, we 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 have one client that's calling a new service that we're, we're 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 building, and then that in turn has to call another service. And because we want to have different separation of concerns and different levels of abstraction when you're in those situations, like trying to think about the recalling or it failing at different endpoints, is, is there a way to best strategize when and how to perform that that retry or perform that sort of add, add in that resiliency? Because uh, like we don't do, like on that second service, right? Uh, so the one client's calling the first service and the first service calls the second service. But that first service if there's a failure in between there, maybe it's retrying and it keeps waiting and waiting, but that's going to keep that first one waiting. So do we want to fail faster there on that first service and let the, fir- the original client say, okay, well, you, you have to you have to hold the, the, the retry logic? Or do we say, well, you're closest to the where the error is happening, so therefore you should be the one who's waiting and retrying? Do, we, do you have any semblance or idea of sort of that best practice?
1: I don't think I do. I think it would it would require, you know, a lot of knowledge of the application, what its common behavior is, you know, is it often in this kind of faulting scenario, is it incredibly infrequent, does it last long, does it last for a short time? You know, it, it's it's hard to give I would say it's hard to give generalized advice.
2: It's good, you know, good consultant, t- consultant answer. T- it depends classic <laughs> <laughs> it depends it depends yeah uh oh no that's good i i, I yeah we i mean i, I think in our, in our situation and i think maybe this is sort of one of the things that it highlights poly uh and that is we were sort of talking originally i was like well you, you could get a lot of that retry right out of a for loop and it's a pretty simple thing but it's not configurable and um you go ahead and use reach, you know something like poly you can Put in what you think is sane, but it gives you more opportunity to change and um, configure more sane, uh, e- even further, You know, better, better configuration later on.
1: And Poly also has a thing called a registry. So it's like a dictionary of your policies. So you can create them when the application starts up, share that dictionary throughout your application with dependency injection, and then pluck a policy from that registry and use anywhere you want. Poly, again, kind of sticking with the HTTP, it's very well uh, tied in with HTTP client factory. So it gives you a fantastically smooth integration with that. But again, I, I don't want to say it's limited to HTTP. Sure. It can be used for an enormous number of things.
0: Clayton isn't here with us this evening, so definitely don't want to let him down. You had mentioned before we started recording Blazor mm. as, as the keyword here. Is Poly something that we can use with Blazer? Is Blazor open to reaping the benefits from utilizing something like poly
1: so about um i know eight nine months ago i was giving a short talk at dotnet conf on on poly and then a bunch of people asked that question and i was going I, I, I don't know i haven't done it but i think so and i have since done it it absolutely works with blazer so it works in any dotnet environment and it blazer is a brilliant use case for it so imagine, you know, you've downloaded your application to the, someone's browser and it's running poly to call back to your server. It's, it's amazing. Uh, I've, I've made a few simple blog posts giving examples of it and it works smoothly, perfectly. And you don't have to change from how you would use it in a non Blazer scenario. It, it's a lovely piece of technology.
2: And I'm, I'm assuming the answer is it doesn't change, but it does it change on whether it's a Blazor client side, Blazor server side.
1: Worked fine for, on both scenarios for me. So I, I was able to run it just fine.
2: That's excellent. Um, well, you've kind of uh, mentioned uh, your site, but what other resources might you point people to? And certainly point them to that one. But what other resources might you point people to who are trying to uh, start plug and poly in because uh, they, they heard about how wonderful it is?
1: My blog has a ton of free content. There's probably 20 or more posts, uh, full source code, download a solution, press F5, and it will run for you. Um, the The Git repository has a lot of discussions and has pretty good documentation, simple examples. There are one or two other Pluralsight courses that have modules on Poly mixed in with them. I don't have the names of those offhand. Stack Overflow has some questions. There is a, a Slack channel as well that people can join, PolySlack. I'm on it, Joel Hewlin is on it, Dylan Reisenberger, and a few others. I don't have as much time as I used to, thanks to the, the situation we're in, but I try to check it every few weeks and answer any questions.
2: What has been helpful in your career that you might share with those just getting started or those looking to level up their own careers?
1: Attending meetups was one of the, I suppose, most enlightening things I did. And it wasn't, you know, that every presentation was amazing or anything, but I met people who were so much more advanced than I was. And they were learning in incredibly active ways, whereas I was at the time picking things up as I needed it. And it changed me from that sort of passive learning to, you know, know what, I'm I'm going to learn something new by myself, figure it out, try it out. And that was sort of the genesis of the blog. And then the blog has become an incredible way for me to learn because I don't write about something until I think I've done it relatively well. And I've been at the blog since 2013. And I try to, you know, broaden and diversify my topics there as well. So in the last, Six, seven months, I've written quite a lot on .NET, on AWS. And that's been, again, a great way of learning new things. And then also the podcast has been a way of talking to people that I would have no business talking to. So I could, like, I reached out to John Skeet, John, do you want to make a podcast? Yeah. You know, and it was, yeah, I'll make a podcast. And I learned all about Noda time from him. Same thing with the likes of Bill Wagner or Mads Torgerson or Maria Nagaga, or I'm, I'm kind of mentioning a lot of the Microsoft people, but pretty much, Having that ability to talk to people who are setting the agenda and are, massive, are a massive influence on our industry and then learn from them, uh, it's, it's amazing. And it's lovely to be able to give that back then as well to people. And you know, with, with some of the guests that are on, I let Twitter know that I'm having them on and I ask people to suggest questions for them. And the questions are usually far better than anything I would ask because you know, it's crowdsourced and people have very, very specific things they would like to know.
2: Well, uh, I think we forgot to mention the name of your podcast. No, the no dogma podcast. Um, But uh, where, where else can our listeners go to follow and keep up, follow you and sort of keep up with what you're working on?
1: I'm not particularly active on Twitter other than I'll put a tweet that I have posted a blog or I posted a podcast. So the No Dogma blog and the No Dogma podcast are the two primary things. If you type those into Google, it should bring you to me. But DMs are open on Twitter if people want to get in touch. And you can find email on, the, on all of my websites and uh, the blog and the podcast have contact forums as well.
0: Fantastic. Brian, thanks so much for joining us tonight. We really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us.
1: And Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.
0: That was Brian Hogan. Brian is a software architect, Microsoft MVP, Plural site author, podcaster, and blogger. He has 20 years of experience focusing on development of web applications, microservices, and desktop applications. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at sixfiguredev.com
2: and catch us live each week on Twitch. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Six Figure Dev.
0: This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I am John Calloway.
2: I'm Clayton Hunt, And I'm John Ash.